Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, all. And I certainly hope it's all. Uh, this is Dr. Lawrence Simon. The show is The Stories We Live By. And for those of you who have been listening or are new to the show, what I've been trying to do in this series is to uh, get people to think outside the box where it psychiatry and psychology are concerned, um, and to develop other perspectives of themselves, other than the story that they've been told by psychiatrists, that if they're confused, unhappy, uh, making a mess of their own lives or others, and sort of know it. I mean, by the way, deep down we always know when we're screwing up. Uh, Oftentimes, the harder we try to convince others or ourselves that we're right, Deep down, we know that there's that feeling of being nauseous, that, that, that we know we're bullshitting ourselves and others. Um, and that's always a good feeling, because to get connected to that uh, is the source of change. Uh, but to remain with the same stories is to just do the same life over and over again. And what I've been saying is that psychiatry and psychology have really provided us with a nasty story uh, that is usually, and I'll try to talk about that from another perspective today, only adds to the difficulties we have in our lives, given the stories we've already swallowed and made up for ourselves that go nowhere and get us into problems. And I want, I've want i been doing this and trying to create these stories without a moral judgment attached to them, although morality is always present. It's clear there I like certain to live by certain stories, and I think that the outcomes are better because they're more moral. But to say something is right or wrong, good or bad, uh, sick or well, adds no understanding to what we're talking about. So today I want to talk about something that I sort of figured out over the 40 years of working with people, and that is when I was talking to somebody who would be telling me as an adult about their childhood, they sounded like a child again. And at one point I said with sympathy to somebody who was talking to me about uh, the misery of their life and how mean their mother had been to them and how not understanding their father had been to them and how he drank and all of the difficulties that they really did have, the pain that they experienced that, that gets hidden when you say, well, he's schizophrenic or he's obsessive-compulsive or he's, you know, he's this or that. All of that gets hidden. The pain is real. The sources of the pain were real. I said, how old do you feel at this moment? Now, if the only age this person could feel was five or six, they couldn't have answered the question. But I knew that there were moments in this person's life when he felt like an adult, when he felt competent, when he felt that he could look into the eyes of other people as an equal. And I think that's what adulthood is. Um, And he said to me, God, I feel like I'm five or six years old. And I thought about this, and I'm going to ask you some questions. And I ask myself these questions. In fact, I'll even give an incident uh, in which I felt like five years old. Imagine that you're talking to a teacher or a policeman or your parent, if they're still alive, or any authority figure. And as you're talking to them, 
imagine this conversation, do you sound like you feel like an adult or a child? Do you feel helpless in relation to them or competent? Do you feel inferior or do you feel yourself to be an equal? Are you still complaining that your mother did this or your father did that and it's 20 years since they've been dead? And what it seems to me we get caught in in our lives is like a time warp. Now, I haven't mentioned any other psychologists, but there's certain ideas from Freud and from developmental psychology that I like to apply here. And Freud had an idea that people can become fixated. And of course, he carried it like so many Freudian ideas to an extreme that if you get fixated, you're fixated totally. So that you're either an adult and grown up or mature, which is a judgment, and so I don't use the word, or you're still infantile. And there's the dichotomy. You see, it's the same as you're either sick or you're well. And this is not true. There are areas where we fail to grow up because we don't have the opportunity to grow up. When I look at a musical instrument, I'm still five years old. When I was about five or six, my parents wanted me to play the violin, and I fought them. I won, and then, of course, later I discovered I lost because I wish I now played a musical instrument. But anyway, when I look at that instrument, the feeling is the same. I'm incompetent in relation to that instrument because I haven't developed the skills. I haven't tackled that situation. And we grow when we master a situation, when we learn to see it from another perspective. And one of the hardest things to do is to see our parents as equals rather than as people from whom we still need things. And it's not that as children we don't need them, their approval, their love, their protection. But if we don't grow out of that, if when we're 50 years old or 40 years old, we're still whining to our parents, you don't understand me, you're not proud of me enough, then we're caught in a time warp, not in a mental illness, not even in an immaturity. We're caught in something and we see the world still as we used to see it. Do you ever have conversations with somebody and swear this time the conversation will end up differently? You're not going to yell, you're not going to scream, you're not going to throw a temper tantrum. And by the way, adults throw temper tantrums the same way as when they were two and three years old. Of course, when it's 40, a 40-year-old 40 man or a 30-year-old man who weighs 200 pounds throws a temper tantrum with his wife or his girlfriend or his child, the results are far more disastrous and dangerous than uh, when he was a kid and he threw himself on the floor and he kicked and he screamed. Why we throw tantrums? I can't take this shit anymore. And we storm out. And we swore we weren't going to do this. Why do we do it? I think one of the reasons we do it is because we start a conversation and it plays like a tape. Each individual in the conversation has one perspective. And by the way, the adult who feels like a child is having a conversation with a child who is a child. In effect, there are two children having a conversation. One who hopefully has an adult perspective or multiple perspectives on things and can see things differently than the child, but doesn't. Right? Uh, how many couples I've worked with over the years where it's two children playing house and acting like adults, 
And again, when I've, I've learned to work with this, and, and, and I'm trusted that I'm not going to be judgmental, and that I'm not taking sides, I'll say to them, do you really feel like an adult living with another adult, or do you feel like a child? I'm listening to a conversation once uh, at a table. My wife and I were having lunch uh, someplace uh, on the east end of Long Island, and a group of men had just finished a softball game. And one of them said to the other, ah, i got to go home to the ball and chain. She's going to make me go shopping. And my wife and I looked at each other, and the first thought that I had is, is this a man married to a woman, or is this a man who's married but feeling like a child talking about his mother, his wife as his mother? And often you'll hear in these conversations the man say to the wife or the wife say to the husband, you're just like my mother. Well, <laughs> here are people forcing each other and reenacting over and over again from the perspective of a child. And so the conversation can't get off in a new direction. It can't get off in a new direction because as that conversation goes on, the people in it, one or both, are speaking to each other from a time warp. They have not yet moved on with their parent, and they're not moving on with their, their loved one. And probably the reason for this is that the parent or the authority wouldn't allow them to move on. Let me, let me give you an example, a personal example of this. Many years ago, I hate to think how many years it is because uh, time goes so fast, my mother was right, the older you get, the faster it goes. But many years ago, I was pulled over by a state trooper on the Southern State Parkway of Long Island. And he came roaring out of his car, big, big man, with a gun. He didn't have it out of his holster, he didn't. And he looked, pointed at me, and he said with a growl, where is your registration sticker? It's not on the window. Now, I had the registration sticker in the car. Right? And um, I said, I'm sorry, officer. And, and I got the registration sticker, and I put it on the window. And he said, okay, go on your way. Right? And afterwards, I thought about this. I had such a rush of shame. This was a man bullying me. I don't know what was going on in his life. I don't imagine he had the best morning. But he was talking to me like a big bully daddy would. And my response, my emotional response, was like a time warp to go back to a time when my own father had screamed at me and taken out a strap and in his rage, in his helpless, angry rage, threatened to hit me. He didn't, by the way. My father never struck me. But that moment stayed with me because it put me under certain situations into a time warp. And at that moment, I was retrapped in that time warp. And I thought of all the things I could have said afterwards to diffuse the situation. Uh, of course, the last thing I would have said is, oh, yeah, uh, because I think I would have been in real serious danger. 
I think you have to appreciate the fact that the man I was talking to was carrying a gun, and I think he was trapped in a time warp. Now, this is not to excuse our behavior. This is not to, to avoid all judgments of the behavior. But to understand some of the, the unhappiness in our lives and our relationships, I think it's important to understand the nature of these time warps. Often, I think you can actually go back in time and, and, and figure out where the warp occurred. Uh, and sometimes it was one incident, but more often than not, it was incidents that occurred over and over and over again. And refers back to my show on authoritarian and totalitarian politics. And I'm going to talk about that uh, in, in a moment from another perspective. So, what is the thinking of the child, you see? Because it's not merely the emotion that's here, that's caught here, but it's the way you think as a child. Children think in a certain way. And, and there's a developmental psychologist by the name of Jean Piaget, who's dead now, maybe 15 years or so, who I think was as important to an understanding of human beings as was Freud or some of the other important psychologists and psychiatrists who, who helped shape the story that I think is a good story. Um, I don't think any of us, and this includes me, have the answer to a story. But I think each of us has pieces that are, are, are an important perspective. And what Piaget pointed out is that the rules of a child's thinking are very different than the rules of an adult. Children think in a certain way. Okay? And what he added, but never really developed, was this idea of fixation, that you can get caught in certain areas if you don't develop new skills and new perspectives to deal with a given situation. And there is no harder situation to change than the relationships in your own family where there are strict rules and ideologies and all kinds of other things that prevent a change in the perception of your parents from your parents to just people. Uh, very often this does take place when your parents get much older and become helpless and dependent on you uh, when you're in your own middle age. But that's a whole fascinating topic uh, for another time, perhaps. Um, and then you suddenly look at them. How could I ever have been afraid of them? How could I have ever seen them as having all of that power and all of that wisdom? Because we do tend to see our parents as perfect. And if they play the perfect role, if they insist they're never wrong, if they are physically abusive in the way uh, they shut us down, then it becomes extremely difficult to, over time to recognize a new perspective, a new set of skills in relation with your parents or with any authority figure. Right? Um, so what are the rules of child thinking. I've, I've spoken about these before, but I want to put them into this perspective. One is that children can only see things from their viewpoint. That's it. They can't see things from any other viewpoint than their own. They can't, as you and I can do on occasion, throw ourselves into the mind of another person and look at the world through their eyes. The, the saying, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, is a critically, critically important piece of growing up. Walk a mile in someone else's shoes. How do you do that? 
Well, I'll talk about that in a bit. But, but the inability of children to do this is very real. And it leads to all kinds of wonderful conversations as adults. Uh, I, I remember listening to a conversation uh, uh, between a married couple I was seeing where the wife said, I'm tired. And the husband's response was not, gee, I'm sorry you're tired. I see your point of view. But you think you're tired? I'm more tired. And then they had a tired contest. You ever see people have a tired contest? I'm more tired than you. Each unable to shift the perspective and give the other person the validity of their point of view. You can be tired. I knew that both of them were tired. They had a difficult, hard life. He worked hard. She worked hard. But they were like two children each insisting they were the most tired. Um, I was poor as a child. How's that conversation go? You think you were poor? It's a wonderful joke. I don't remember where I've seen the routine. Uh, I was so poor that I slept with my brothers and sisters in the one bed. And the person's response was, you think that's poor? I slept with my brothers and sisters on the floor. Oh, you think you were poor? We didn't even have a floor. I've seen people have wonderful contests. Whose life is more wonderful? And whose life is more awful? And, 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 and these conversations are child conversations because there's a refusal to recognize that there's another person with another perspective. You don't even have to agree with that perspective. But children can't even begin to understand that there's another perspective. Okay? For children, it's all or nothing. Good is best and bad is the worst. So if you're weak, you're the weakest. And those who are more powerful are the most powerful. If I don't know something, then I'm the stupidest. I know nothing at all. And those who know something, they know everything. And children do see their parents as all-powerful and all-knowing. As a teacher, I did, I think, grow and mature. There was a time early in my career I felt terribly challenged if a student knew something I didn't know. And I would argue and fight. And I realized, what kind of a jerk was, was I? What kind of a baby am I? And it became a point where I would enjoy a student who challenged my ideas. Now, I demanded respect. I, I, don't call me a dummy or stupid because I don't know something. Um, and, and the first year I taught, I was 20 in my 20s, and I had a license, and I called a student stupid. And the look on his face, it was as if I stabbed him in the heart. And I apologized to him later in the day, and I swore because I could see the damage I had done to this child, because I was the authority, and he was causing me trouble, and he didn't show me necessary respect. But I had the adult perspective. Ultimately, I had the power. And, and it was important that I don't make this child, or any child, or any of us make someone feel this stupid, because they will accept the fact that they are now completely, utterly stupid or damaged. And, and this leads to those perspectives I spoke about earlier in earlier shows that produce the most terrible kinds of unhappy behaviors that get diagnosed by, by the shrinks as mental illnesses. Uh, what else? So there's lack of perspective. 
no no grays, all black and all white. And and I could go on, but I think I could add other things later. How do you get out of this? How do you get unstuck? And by the way, I want to talk a little about a little about being stuck. Because many of us who don't get ahead in our careers, uh, because we're in time warps, because we have a set of stories that we've swallowed from a child's perspective that haven't been changed, uh, they won't like me. Uh, the blind other, the other that's all-powerful, uh, all of this uh, uh, has such a deleterious effect on our relationships, our work life. Uh, can be so terribly affected by this, where we, we accept less for ourselves in a career because we don't believe we deserve more or because we do think of ourselves as inferior and childlike. Um, so so we, we feel stuck. In fact, when I was thinking about various emotions we have, uh, stuckness is one of the best. And the next time you say, I feel stuck in my life, perhaps you'll be able to step outside and say, am I seeing the world from the child's point of view? Do I see my job as an inferior who is hopeless and helpless to change anything? Let me add, yes, this is very important. Children can't tell time. It's not until seven that they develop a time perspective. Therefore, there's no past, there's no future. Now is all time. It's forever. When you hear yourself or you hear ourselves say, nothing will ever change, uh, that's impossible. Everything changes. Change is everywhere. But that requires, I think, a different perspective. And I'm going to use the judgmental word mature, a more mature adult perspective. All right? What do you do? What do you do about this? Well, uh, someone emailed me recently. Uh, that he agreed with my view that depression isn't an illness, but he's depressed. And he doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, love is not forthcoming in his life. Good things are not in his life. And I wrote back to him. I don't give advice, and I didn't give advice. I asked some questions. If the world doesn't love you, do you still have an ability to love the world? Are you capable of love? And love means, and I really do believe love means, caring about somebody else as much as for yourself, as much as yourself. The first step in love and being loved is to recognize that you are heard, that you have a perspective that's valid in the eyes of the person who loves you. And, and, and there's a conundrum here. Because if you've never experienced yourself as important in the eyes of some adult or powerful figure, if you've never experienced that you are important, that what you say matters to that person, it becomes very difficult to love yourself. And by loving yourself, a respect for your own ideas, rather than I'm stupid and I'm dumb and I'm a shit and I shouldn't have been born, and that entire litany of of, of child time-warped ideas that trap us so awfully. So if, if, if we, 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 we haven't experienced that, can we love ourselves? And can we love others? So I appeal to this individual. What would happen if you volunteered in a hospital and, and look at people in great distress and listen to their distress? Now, I said, that's unfair. 
It really is unfair. You should be, have given the love, you should have received, you should have been accepted. This should have been part of a natural developmental process. But if it hasn't been, you're trapped. You're trapped in a time warp. Poor me. By the way, every bartender knows that the next line for poor me is poor me, pour me a drink. Uh, I always love that one. I didn't make that up. It's a really good one. I heard that from a bartender. Poor me. And I don't know what this young man's going to do, but my guess is if he goes out and he listens to the sorrows of others, he is loving them. And if he loves them, respects them, gives them their point of view, no matter how difficult that might be, how, from his point of view, unfair since he was not given. See, why should I do for others if they haven't done for me? I think he's going to experience being loved, being respected. Because it's very, very hard not to love someone who loves you first, who respects you. It's extremely difficult. I don't know what he'll do. Um, when, when students ask me how much psychology should they should take, I tell them as little as possible. Take what's required and then read good novels. Read a lot. Read Shakespeare. Uh, I'm reading now Middlemarch by George Eliot. Not an easy read but wonderful, filled with wonderful perspectives. Why is this important? Because a good novelist, a good playwright, lets you see people with all their foibles, with all their silliness, with all their cruelties, as human beings. You go from person to person and see their perspective. You see the life, the culture. You see what entrapped them in their time warps. And the best books, show you how people develop and move from these child, angry, frightened, confused, judgmental time warps into something much richer and something much better. And I think that's what requi what's required to become a good novelist. Okay? So one of the things I would always tell people I work with is read a lot. If you can bring yourself to read a lot, because to see others with sympathetic eyes and with compassion allows you to see yourself with the same sympathetic eyes. And sympathetic eyes and compassion means a reduction in egocentrism. It means moving from the child's fixed point of view to one where there's many perspectives and therefore many opportunities for change. One final note. When I listen to the people now running for president, I hear people trapped in a time warp. I do. None of them ever say or sound like a human being. These are people of whatever party who lust after power. And they never say, I lust after power. I want something for myself. I want to get the babes. I want to get rich. It's all I'm a saint. I'm doing this just to serve you. And you know, unless you're a child in a time warp, that this is bullshit. Of course, we seem to pick the biggest liar every four years, and the dictators all over the world seem to say exactly the same thing. They're saints. Their enemies are nothing. They're nobody. You can't disagree with these individuals. It's all, they are perfect. They have no flaws. They never make mistakes. They never say they're sorry. 
Each time we pick, we seem to pick from a child's point of view, those who promise us the most, that somehow we should know they can't deliver. How can somebody take power and be able to affect the lives of hundreds of millions of people, a billion people, and not be humbled and say how frightened and humbled they are? They're always right. They're certain. And the blood flows and the damage that's done. And I want to, I raise this topic, not because I want to do a show on partisan politics and change the genre or the definition of my own show, but in my next show I want to talk about the psychology of politics and analyze it from the perspective that I've just done with you uh, at this moment. Uh, many years ago, I said to a group of students, I've invented the Simon mental health test for the presidency. It's one true-false question. Do you want to be president? And if you say yes, we lock you up until, and treat you till you get over it. It seems to me that the most dangerous people caught in time warps, without any insight, seem to be willing to lie, cheat, and do whatever they take to get power, all the while telling us, like we're little children, you can't know this, I know it all, you'd better listen to me, and appeal to us in our fear and on our own ignorance to, to follow along mindlessly and childishly into whatever horrible plans they seem to have for us and the world around them. Okay, that's it for today. It's been my pleasure to be with you. And uh, until next time, I'll try to make it the same time, although next Wednesday I think I'm going to make it a little bit later because I'm playing in a tennis tournament. Goodbye.